Finishing a cookbook manuscript and hitting the send button is a great accomplishment. Pop that champagne, but don't drink too much of it. The thrills and spills of editing will soon begin. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for curious writers, readers, and cooks. I'm Andrea Nguyen, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Kate Leahy, Kristen Donnelly, and Molly Stevens. The road to making a great cookbook can get a little bumpy. What's involved and how do you survive and thrive? Hey there. Hey. Andrea. Hey. So before we tackle what it takes to polish and ready a manuscript for printing, I wanted to back up a little bit and ask you guys this. Do you have a ritual for celebrating sending off a manuscript? I feel like I should have one because it's one of those things where I send it off and I I know what's coming next and I don't take the time to just celebrate that one sort of milestone. What do you guys do? I definitely take a moment to celebrate, but acknowledge the accomplishment. You know, you're not done. So you you don't want to drink drink too much, right? (laughs) The work is just beginning in many ways, but it's a big step. And I really do take a moment to sort of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wipe my brow, slap my hands and have a little something nice. Yeah, I'm sure a little bubbly wine has been involved before, but I wouldn't call it a ritual. And now I also want one. You guys, I do a little dance. Okay. Nice. <laughs> okay, what move? What is your signature soundtrack? Move. Do you have a soundtrack for that? No, I it's in my head. I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I jump around a little bit because it is, you know, for me kind of like, whew, that's one huge benchmark to cross. But, you know, I always know that as good as a manuscript can be, it always needs help. (laughs) And to, you know, to really get it ready for prime time. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because authors don't work alone. We work with a team of editors, professionals. I'm not much of a sports person, but I do tend to think of the editing process like a sporty thing. So like if you're an author, you're the star athlete, the MVP, your editor is the head coach. Then there is the copy editor and the designer who are assistant coaches. And near the end, someone like the proofreader is brought in. And that person's kind of like the team equipment manager. And everyone works with you to make your words sing high and bright and ready for prime time. And prime time is kind of like the big game, you know, where you have been tossing the ball back and forth. And then now you're going to really lay it in and play and shoot that manuscript off to send to the printers. Basically, Andrea, you are Steph Curry in this situation, right? (laughs) You are shooting threes, but you need some help. You're on a team, really. I'm kind of like Steph Curry crossed with his wife, Aisha. You know, there you go. Perfect. (laughs) Who writes cookbooks? Right. See, we were going to tie it back to cookbooks somehow. Girlfriend, definitely. (laughs) So, you know, it first starts with the production schedule. And that happens at various times during the book creation process. How do you guys negotiate that production schedule? And what do you feel like are your author's obligations and duties? The one thing I would say about production schedule is I lined it up with my calendar going forward because chances are during the writing process, the recipe development process, I've been working pretty full tilt on the thing. Once I send it off, I know there are going to be some breaks where I can take on other work or do other things or maybe take some time off or whatever it is. But I I try to line up the production schedule with 
whatever else is going on so that, you know, maybe I need some other projects because I've just lost so much money working on this manuscript for so many years without me because I've burned (laughs) up my advance and I need some cash. But so to just sort of lay it out and so I can see what the next, because it's going to be a year before that book goes to print. Right. So typically you get about 12 to 14 months to truly edit the book. And that kind of shifts around a little bit. You line it up with your schedule, but who determines that? I mean, the editor sort of does, right? And how much leeway does the author have? In my experience as an author, I have not had a lot of leeway on the production schedule. They pretty much tell me when it's going to come back to me and give me a deadline for sending it back. And maybe there's like a week or two or a day or two, depending on how much space there is on either end. But those deadlines are pretty important because they're they're working toward a deadline for when they're going to send the book to print. Then that determines when the book will go on sale. Yeah, I agree. And they can be really tight turnarounds too. I think that's the other reason I was talking about lining it up, because if they say they might get something back to you and they need you to look at it and turn it around, I have often found those are incredibly tight. So if I'm busy with something else, it's problematic. Right. What's your experience, Kate, in terms of that, that production schedule? Because it is kind of like what we're working with and toward. Even when I'm still in the process of writing the manuscript and I haven't finished the, that first draft yet and I haven't sent it to the editor, I will ask the editor for the production schedule, like Molly was saying, so I can plot it out on my calendar. I have a deadline where I know I need to turn in the whole manuscript. But even before I do that, I can have a sense of, okay, when can I expect the big picture edit questions to come back to me? And I think that's something we're going to talk about next is first, we have those those big picture edits that we have to kind of grapple with and fix and make our manuscript better. And then after that, I need to make sure I have time to answer all the other editing questions that come our way. And those, like we were saying, it comes in batches. You might have two weeks off and one week on or two weeks on, a month off. It really depends. But you just need to, if you have those on your calendar, you can then plan around it and know that it's not going to be a good time to go on vacation in June if that's going to be a real crunch time in getting the manuscript out the door and ready for for publication. Most definitely. So you mentioned big picture edits. So let's talk about that a little bit. There are different terms for that. Sometimes the term that's thrown around is a developmental edit um, and also a line edit. And that doesn't always happen once the manuscript comes in. Sometimes it happens beforehand. So can you guys talk a little bit about, you know, how your experiences have been shaped by the the various big picture edits? A big picture edit will be something like, I'll just take uh, Burma Superstar for an example. That was a book that I worked on a few years ago. And when I turned in the manuscript and that had all the head notes and all the recipes, like the entire first draft of that book and how I wrote it is, is all what I turned in. And then several weeks later, you get it back from your editor with questions. Questions like, you know, some of these head notes mention people, specific people, but some don't. And there doesn't seem to be the right balance. You need either to have a lot more people mentioned or take out everybody just to have those kind of balances. These are that kind of thing to me is a big picture edit because it's going through the whole tone of the book and how the whole book reads. So if, say, I was writing, I don't know, um, a fictional story, if this would be whether or not the the plot makes sense, whether or not you need a different ending. So with cookbooks, 
It's about, does it feel cohesive? Are those fixes that you can make the book polished a little bit more? So we're not talking about teaspoons and tablespoons here. We're talking about what you're trying to say. Is it really coming across the way you mean it to, to come across? Right. So that goes back to the whole thing of like, what is it that you want to say, your mission? Molly, you've mentioned in the past that that your big picture edit comes at different phases of your writing process. Yeah. And it's different for different editors. I have worked with one editor who will not look at it until it's finished, until I've turned in a full manuscript. Another editor willing to look at it halfway through, and in fact, has asked to look at it halfway through. I've, I've been asked to submit what's called proof of progress, which is meant to be a third to a half of the book. And not only submit it, but I've also gotten feedback at that point. You talk about rituals and when you turn it in. To me, this is really exciting time of the book process because I love to collaborate. So I, to me, it's like going to school. They can bring to it an outside opinion that I can't as my own voice. So it's a really exciting time. Yeah, it can be so lonely. And up until that point, you know, you're just in your own little silo. And maybe you've gotten some feedback on your recipes from testers, which might be the first time people are seeing it. But when the editor takes a look, finally, it is this team project. I think it's so nice to get that feedback. One of my um, developmental edits, I remember I handed in a manuscript that was too long. And that was a big thing. They were like, contractually, you're down for 45,000 words, you handed in 60. So you got to cut 15,000 words. Like, oh my I totally God. know your pain because that <laughs> happened to me. And I think um, Kristen coming from the magazine world, we're used to word counts being pretty severe, but also thinking, but the editor is going to work with you to figure out what you're going to cut or where, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I remember I turned in a manuscript many years ago that was 20,000 words too long. And the editors just kicked it back and said, figure out how you're going to cut 20,000 words. And it was like, oh my God, I just didn't even think of that. I thought yeah. this would be more this collaboration. So it's a collaboration to a point, but editors who do books don't have the time to go line by line and say, oh, this is where you can trim. They're going to say, I don't have the capacity to cut 20,000 words with you. You need to figure out first, then bring it to me. Then I can do my developmental edit. Yeah. Well, and there's the cost involved. When you sign on to a book deal, there's a price point. So they're looking at how many pages, you know, production um, and how it's going to do in the marketplace. During the development edit, they can take a look at, for example, in working with one editor at 10 Speed Press, she asked for my introduction. She asked for a sample of 10 recipes, including the shortest recipe, a medium recipe, a long recipe, and then any kind of artwork that I want to design because she wanted to get a sense of what kind of content I was putting together. I take a look at that word count in the contract, you know, and then I always go over it. Mm-hmm. It's easier to cut than to add, man. Yes, that's so, so true. true. <laughs> and I'm an overwriter, but not too much. I try, yeah. you know. With my last book, uh, the All About Dinner, I had written it. It wasn't specific to dinner. It was a general weekday cookbook. And during the developmental edit, it became clear that dinner was really what the book was about. So I took it back and then had to reconfigure it in a way. Wow. Wow. It was hard, but it was good work. And that's why I go to Kate, what you were saying about your editor isn't going to do the cuts for you because they don't have time. And, but it's also, that's part of your job is honing your own voice. You get the feedback and then you've got to go back and do that extra hard work. You know, I had to cut some of my favorite recipes because I had a bunch Mm. of breakfasts in there and I tried to make this whole case for breakfast for dinner, which is definitely a thing. 
thing. But totally. But I could tell I was they also wanted the book had to be shorter because, as you said, Mm -hmm. it had a price point and it couldn't be a 600 page book. It is hard work, but it kind of I like the work because you're you're in this sort of narrower confines. I have a question for you, Molly. Did you have a title for your book before it became all about dinner? Okay, I've already talked about one really embarrassing title on this podcast, so I'm not (laughs) sure. I didn't have a title that I liked. It was it was always a working title. And I think that probably should have been a red flag for me that I that I didn't have a title that I loved. And so there's all about braising, there's all about roasting. And I really wanted to get away from the all about there's a certain hubris in it that I was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with, even though it just means this book is all about this topic. But I was trying to break away from it. And my publisher, it was a brand to them and they wanted to stick with it. And I, in the end, my agent helped me think this through. It's so. a trilogy, right? It's, it's a, trilogy. a trilogy. I think it's great. Yeah. 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 I do yeah. too. Yeah. After dinner, you've got breakfast and lunch, Molly. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. All about, oh, you'll never, you're never done. <laughs> and the thing that you said, Molly, that I really, really agree with is I like the developmental edit process. Right now, I'm in the throes of writing that awful first draft. And it is so much more fun to dip back into chapters that I feel better about than it is to embark on the new chapters where they're just such a mess right now that I'm my head is spinning. So I can't wait to the part where they're all in some sort of form. I mean, you have to write your first draft before you can make it better. I love that you say (laughs) the awful. I did a writing workshop a year ago and the assignment was to write a shitty first draft. I've heard them called FFDs. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I love that. (laughs) Well, you know, so so the big picture edit, you know, you you get it back and I feel like it's a funnel, right? You know, and, and it gets narrower and narrower. And so the big picture one just kind of puts a few guardrails on your writing. And that can happen after you turn your manuscript in or while you're writing your manuscript. What about the fine tuning that your editor does, the line edit? I have not always received the fun of of having a line edit done because sometimes I'll turn in a manuscript and it goes directly into what's called a copy edit, which we'll talk about further. But you all have more experience with the line edit than I do, I believe. I will say, so I used to work for a magazine and line editing was huge. So line editing is basically where they're editing your prose word for word. Line by line. Um, Line by line. line. Exactly. And I have to say my agent is actually a beautiful line editor. Occasionally he'll do some line editing on a proposal and it's so well done. So I was a little surprised with the book process about how the line edit is pretty light. I would say if it happens at all, maybe they'll mark something that's like, this is awkward. But that, in my experience, that's mostly been the line edit. Whereas when I worked for magazines, every caption was, you know, every little thing was line edited. It was surprising to me and it made me feel like I had to become more confident in a way as a writer. I agree. I feel like my first book, I was developmentally edited. I was line edited. I got like the whole shebang and I learned so much. But subsequent to that, I don't know, they just kind of like let me out to pasture or they just felt like, oh, Andrea can do it. She did it. Here's the manuscript. And I went right into copy edit. But the line edit, I feel, is like where the rubber hits the road for a lot of writers, because that's where you get like those queries, Mm -hmm. things in the margins. Traditionally, they were done in pencil. Molly, do you have anything to share about that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Having been around for a while, it's exactly right, Andrea, that part of it is as a first time author, you're more apt to be line edited, but also the editors now are busier than they've ever been. They don't have as much help. They're taking on more, more and more 
titles, and so they don't have the time to do a line edit. I also know that there are editors who will hire out a line edit if a manuscript is really in trouble. And it's work that I have done, and it's we've talked about other ways to work as a freelancer in the cookbook arena. But if you're a really good editor or really can help improve a piece of prose, I've done it for publishers. They've hired me. It's totally behind the scenes. No one knows I've even done it. And I've actually done it on my own books. I've had someone look at it and give it a second edit as well. On Vietnamese Food Any Day, I got a light developmental edit, and then I went through the entire manuscript and edited it down, sent it back to my editor, who did not do a line edit, but she just sent it into the next phase of fine-tuning, which is copy editing. How does copy editing differ from a line edit? Because it's not done by your editor. It's done by a copy editor who is oftentimes a freelancer. And that's sort of like, for me, sometimes a shocking process because, you know, the copy editor isn't just going to suggest things. A copy editor will go ahead and make changes. Mm-hmm. At that point, you as the author can sometimes feel like you have less control. But how do you negotiate that, Kristen? Well, sometimes a copy editor can really save you. Let's say in recipes, you call for three tablespoons of oil and only two are used in the recipe. The copy editor most likely will catch that. Hopefully they're going to be checking the spellings of proper names. Grammar, spelling, I mean, hopefully you spell check, but they'll also hopefully catch some other spelling things. Style. Right. And different publishers have different ways on how they want a recipe written. So sometimes, you know, you might spell out teaspoon. Sometimes it might be uh, shortened to TSP. So there's a lot of different things that go into it. And a copy editor is sort of that person, Kristen, to what you were saying. That's the person who's going to catch that and be that sort of like pebble in your shoe in the best way possible, if that makes any sense. It's kind of like that person who is going to point out all your foibles. <laughs> you can't read your own manuscript and catch everything. You're just not going to. You're going to sometimes write ladder when you meant ladder. You're going to miss a colon or a semicolon or it does, or a comma or just completely misspell a very common word. It happens to everybody. And a copy editor is that fresh pair of eyes that can catch all that for you. And sometimes I've had in my experience, I won't be formally line edited, but a copy editor will sometimes catch things and make suggestions for rephrasing. And that'll be a little comment in the margin when I get the manuscript back. Yeah. You know, a copy editor, I always say, even though I get angry sometimes, shocked by some of the things that they (laughs) suggest, and sometimes they also insert um, errors. So you have to watch for that. But when those moments come, when it gets very frustrating late at night, I do this thing where I write in the queries, which are all done through Word and attract changes. I write like a nasty response and then I just leave it till the next day and I delete it. And it's just somehow helps me release that. You know, and I always think like every kind of of mistake that a copy editor points out is something that I get to learn from too, because they're looking at my manuscript as if they're a cook that is approaching the manuscript, trying to work through something. But, you know, you just always have to check every single one of those queries to make sure that they make sense and that you agree with them because you may not always agree with them. And with foreign words, too, um, that's really up to the author to keep track of because a copy editor is not necessarily going to um, know terms in, say, Mandarin or Vietnamese. But a good one is great to have. And I always tell my editor to book someone far ahead in advance for my projects. Molly, you've worked with the same copy editor on many of your projects, right? Yeah, I've been very fortunate. I worked with Judith Sutton, who is 
just a remarkable copy editor made my books much, much better. The thing I do is I write my own style sheet as well as working with the house style sheet because there's certain things that I feel strongly about. We've talked about this, like I don't say preheat the oven, I say heat the oven. And I find by having a style sheet out front, I can argue for things that may not be in the house style, but are the way I want to say them. You know, how you call for salt, how you call for, you know, is it neutral oil or neutral flavored oil or, you know, vegetable oil and just sort of lay those things out. And I, the reason I create a style sheet at the beginning of the process is I find sometimes I change my style way through and then you have to go back and make sure all those recipes match. So it just helps me stay organized. You know, just because a copy editor says that's the way it should be, most times they're right, but sometimes there's a way that you want to personalize your recipes and it is your book. It is your name on the cover. So Correct. So that's something that I always tell people, you know, that's your name on the cover. No one else's name is on the cover. Your editing team's names are not included. They're included in the acknowledgments, perhaps. Um, but, you know, it is your book at the end of the day. So, you know, you have to take ownership of that. Recipe writing can sometimes be kind of depersonalized, right? Mm-hmm. You end up using the same words over and over. Add this mm-hmm. to the bowl, stir it in. And sometimes you want a little bit of flair. And that's where, you know, you got to like fight for it. Kristen, you've worked on a lot of collaborations with chefs and other folks. How do you work in their kind of style? Sometimes it's a little bit of push and pull, I would say. With chefs especially, they have restauranty type terms like hotel pan, for example, which is something that's in every restaurant kitchen. A home cook has no idea what that is. And the chef I just worked with most recently, he hated the word drizzle, took it out, like took it out. (laughs) He was like, Spoon. Oh, and he hated sprinkle, except in very rare cases. <laughs> you know, people have their quirks and their things. But yeah, I, I feel like it's just a, a little bit of a push and pull negotiation. So the copy edit returns to you and then you get one pass through it where you're reviewing all the comments and making responses, changes. Sometimes, you know, you, you just have to click, I agree, you know, with the copy editor's changes. And then sometimes you put your own changes in there. One of the things that I do always is I check the quantities in the recipes to make sure that those have not been changed. So I always keep like printout of my original drafts of the recipes and then I just print out the copy edit and I match them up because at the end of the day, man, those quantities are very, very important. But so where are those mistakes, those errors coming from? Okay. I think that those errors sometimes can come in the copy edit. You know, sometimes it comes in design, which is the next phase. You know, this is what what I consider the pretty edit. Mm -hmm. The important point here is that mistakes can crop up at any time. Mm -hmm. And fractions. Yes. (gasps) Because fractions don't always copy and paste quite nicely. That's really good advice, Andrea. You know, Andrea, I just thought of something. I think this was a copy editor thing that you had where somebody changed remove from the heat to turn off the heat or something like that. Yes. I was horrified. Um, It was to my rice cooking instructions. And I just wanted them to turn off the heat and leave it to cook on the residual heat of the burner. And the copy editor throughout was just like, remove from the heat, remove from the heat. And I was just like, God damn it, you know, and then I had to go back and I had to justify it. This particular copy editor also thought that she knew how to 
wet rice paper better than I did. So rewrote my instructions without pinging me. And that's one of the things where I just think, you know, I know how to do that pretty well. I wrote very precise directions and then the copy editor thought they knew better. And so it's just stuff like that where you really need to look at the file so that you can catch all the errors or all the changes that the copy editor made, you know, and I'm speaking totally because of course that was sort of a traumatic experience. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. But I mean, you need you to know, take time. You need to spend need, time yeah, with it's it. It's not just like, yes. look at it, except it's done. No. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, let me ask you this, Andrea. If this was your first cookbook, would you have known that you would have had the power to go back and question those changes? You know, on my first cookbook, the copy editor was so darn generous. She was one of the best And Sharon Silva, and I had read books that she edited back in the 70s, one of my favorite, favorite cookbooks. And she knew Asian cuisines, too. And every single time she suggested an edit, she pinged me and asked a question. On my second book, Asian Dumplings, similar kind of thing. Same thing with tofu, because I just had these people who were like yes, is this the way you want it? And I would say, yes, thank you. I just thought that was how that was supposed to happen. But Molly, as you've said over time, editors and copy editors have less energy to do that kind of generous communication with authors. So so you as the author, you're, you know, at the end of the line, again, it's your name. And you got to watch for uh, what is finally put into print, which is where you kind of see things more easily once we get to the pretty edit, once that it gets dropped into the layout and design phase. Finally, just a quick note on copy editing. Um, There are pitfalls that can happen to any author, but good copy editors are still so, 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 so important to the book process. The book I wrote, Wine Style, um, sometimes they can also have a sense of humor. Um, Chris Balloon, who was the copy editor for that book, knew that the audience for Wine style was not supposed to be for professional chefs. It was for anybody who could cook from this book. And I had a step in there where someone had to fold in whatever ingredient and she called it out and she said, well, you remember that episode on Schitt's Creek where they didn't know what it meant to fold it in? You know, when do you fold it in? And she just had this little joke. Do you really want to use fold it in or can you just be a little bit more? straightforward. And I just love that. And so good copy editors are hard to find. If you love copy editing, it's a great way to get into cookbooks. So I just wanted to shout out to all those great copy editors who do save us. I did today just change fold to gently stir in two instances. Because we had talked about this before. So, <laughs> so, so let's fold into the next part. Oh, of, nice um, segue. Thank <laughs> you. Of the, the process, which again is where you get sent these beautiful design pages, proofs of your book. And um, they arrive in the form of a huge package at your doorstep as well as a PDF. More and more. I'm just getting digital copies and I print them myself. Oh, that's so hard. Do you have to pay? Do you have to go? to the some store and print it out and that's like 50 yeah. bucks sometimes yeah. right it, or if it's it depends on how they design it like i just received one that's eight and a half by 11 so i can print it, it at home but then you're not seeing the spreads i know because no. those 11 by 17 pages are just so you know awesome to take a look at you get between what two and four passes at those so so that's where you're reading and reviewing and checking things and sometimes the designer will definitely show you you have too much copy and you got to mm-hmm. cut it 
So that's where late at night I am counting the number of characters and the number of lines and trying to see how much I can trim and snip and essentially use a scalpel to um, make those changes. Molly, how many passes do you typically get? Depends on the project. I have seen as far in as the fourth pass. But by the time you see the fourth pass, you are not making a change unless it's absolutely crucial. Like, you know, you are not because any change at that point just could wreak havoc, could make the whole house fall down sort of thing. And it, it's very expensive. But um, typically, you're still able to make changes in the certainly the first and the second. But once it's, you know, it's it's usually being indexed sometime around then. So the page numbers are being taken into account. But one of the things I'm looking for is the flow, especially in the recipe procedure, because as, as you all know, I, I tend to write long recipes with a lot of instruction. And so sometimes there will be a page break or a line, you know, a column jump. And I want to make sure that it's at not at some critical moment where, you know, you're, you're up to your elbows in something and you need to flip a page or something. And so as much as I can want it to flow. So it's, it's useful, but it still is easy to read. Yeah, there's the flow of the copy and also how it lays on the page. So I always try to juggle the um, the copy so that, for example, more or less at the bottom of the page, they're equal. Mm-hmm. You know, right? So that it's handsome looking and there's a nice amount of white space on the page. And my designer always comes back and says, I really appreciate that sort of work. You know, it's not easy. I go through a lot of erasers, frankly. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) And I have to sweep up all the eraser bits, which is really (laughs) annoying. So for my own books, I've been on the photo shoots. Sometimes for books where I'm a collaborator, I'm not on the photo shoot. And especially now with the pandemic, they're not always letting authors in the photo shoot. I don't love it. (laughs) I'll just say that. I don't love it. Because then I get these photos and there's a different garnish added or it's plated differently than I explain. And so during that first pass, I'm paying a lot of attention to is the photo really matching the recipe? If it's not, do I have to add an ingredient? Do I have to change the plating? If I don't really like the way they plate it, do I just leave it the way it is, but maybe acknowledge something in the head note? You can also do this. Right. And not every single author attends a photo shoot. And oftentimes when you take a look at a cookbook at the end, you look at the photos and it's like, hey, wait a second, that has peanuts on it, but the recipe doesn't call for it. Mm -hmm. So yes, Kristen, that is, man, that's a lot of work if you're not at the shoot yourself. Even if you are at the shoot yourself, it does help to just cross-reference and make sure there's not something that just you forgot to to add to the recipe and was done on set. So it's and it's it's nice when you have those printed out pages because you literally have the recipe and the photo and they're right next to each other. You're not scrolling to different documents. So you can really check. It's another way of adding those almost invisible polishes to your book that no one's going to notice unless you get it wrong. Right. But it makes such a difference. I also think when it's in pages, when it's in layout and you're looking at it, I'm so much more comfortable editing working on the written part but when you have to step back and start looking at it as a a book a visual object you need to get into that brain where you're looking at the whole you're checking to make sure that the photograph matches the recipe that the titles of the recipe that's another thing the title might have gotten changed somewhere along the rain does the title still match the recipe things that are that you really need to like step up 
from a higher level and look down at it. And it takes a fresh eyes, which I find really difficult because you know this stuff, you've read it so many times by now. Yeah. How long do you guys take? It's not something you can just do in a half an hour. This is a few days of work. A week or two. Because you can't do it all at once or else you'll just start getting blurry. But I often also make a list of things as I'm going that I want to go back and check at the very end for consistency purposes. I'm going to do just a pass where I look at how rice is called for in every single recipe or something like that and make sure it makes sense. Those are the little micro level edits that happen that, you know, that polishes a book to get it super, super ready for for print. And during the editing process, there's a certain point where a proofreader comes in as well as an indexer. I always feel like that's when you're approaching the end of the line. I always take a look at the proofs after the proofreader goes through it, because again, you know, micro changes are being made and the proofreader may not have caught everything. And with every single pass that you, the author, goes through with with these laid out pages, go back and make sure that the changes that you've requested have been inserted properly because sometimes they're not inputted. The great thing about PDFs, proofs is that you can copy paste the exact text that you want in so that the person who keys it in is just doing a transfer of information. And when I have a lot of text that I want changed, um, I will type that in and send it in a separate document to my designer and indicate which line, which paragraph it goes in so they can just drop it into the design. And so it's less work for them. I always feel like if it's less work for them, well, then they'll let me like kind of wiggle more (laughs) stuff into. Exactly. (laughs) As the proof process goes on. For me, I could fuss endlessly with any paragraph I've ever written. I could still rewrite it. You know, it's never perfect, right? So it gets increasingly hard as you're editing to just live with things that you're right? You're like, oh, there's a better way to say that. And so you kind of have to move from writer into editor the further along we get, because you get to a point where it's it's in layout. You know, those are the moments when I need to walk away and take a break. And I'm like, okay, I'm not rewriting at this <laughs> point. I'm just looking for things that are wrong. Yeah. At the end, but, like I, I usually, I mean, mm-hmm. I think publishers often give you two passes with your lay, laid out pages, but there was a project recently where I asked for a third pass and I said, it's only to cross check. Yes. I said, if I see something, unless it's like egregious, I'm not going to mark it. Like a missing ingredient or something like that. But if you're just sick of the word drizzle and you've used it, you still have to yeah, stick with let it. Go. <laughs> yeah. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> what about a sensitivity read? I've done three sensitivity readings um, on a freelance basis. And I feel that as more cookbooks cover global flavors, that, you know, it's increasingly sensitivity reads are necessary. Have you guys seen that increasingly? I have requested sensitivity reads and Andrea's helped me with one before. Actually, a project I'm working on now, they hired sensitivity readers, which is awesome. I appreciate it so much. In one place where I feel like a sensitivity read is helpful are recipe titles. For example, there's a recipe I was working on and it, and this was like early, I think it was in the proposal. So I called it Korean inspired something noodles. And the sensitivity reader is like, besides the fact that there's gochujang in this, is this really cur-? like she called it out and those things are just helpful. And there are times when you're, you're like, oh, I stand by this choice. This is why. But it's just having extra eyes 
to see something you might not see or question something that you wouldn't think to question. Yeah. And, and this is new ground for publishers, I think, to to even factor in the time for a sensitivity read into that production schedule. We mentioned it the early, earlier in the show. So I think this is something, it's new ground for publishers. It's great they're making these steps. But what's also going to happen is that that money to pay those sensitivity readers is going to have to be factored into the cost of book production. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's also going to have to change. So an important step like that is going to make sure that if you are running late on a manuscript or your edits, it's going to push back the process even even more. And it also might change your publication date. So deadlines in these situations, especially when you have an additional step are really important. Yeah, the the sensitivity um, reads that I have done have come in after the copy edits um, were entered and the author has agreed to it. Then I was asked to take a look at the manuscript at that point. Typically, there isn't that much time you know, I negotiate that with the editor. I audit the book too, um, to just make sure that the recipes flow. And and so I do a, an extra bit aside from like the cultural and historical information, just to make sure that it can be the best possible book for the author. Because I think that when you're working on an editing team, you're there ultimately for the star athlete, mm-hmm. the MVP. And so there's so much involved with um, the bookmaking process. And one of the things I wanted to add is that at the end of the day, I also want to make sure that the names of all of my recipe testers are correctly spelled in acknowledgments. That's a good one. They watch my back so much. So true. We've gone through so many wonderful details that I hope help people who are working on on a cookbook to get through the editing process. So tell me, to get through the rigors of editing your manuscript, what's your self-care routine? Well, I think for me, I have a dog now and it's walking the dog. (laughs) That's going to be my self-care. That's my sanity. That's when I don't have to look at a screen or a piece of paper or anything like that. And my brain can just be free for a little bit. For me, it's going to bed early. Oh, good one. It's it's not just when editing. It's anytime things are really stressful. I just I'm like, you know what? I'm going to bed at nine. It'll be there in the morning and I'll feel better and more ready to tackle this. What about you, Molly. I was thinking the same thing, Chris and I. I used to be a night owl and could I could even work at night. I could stay up and and now I I go to bed. <laughs> if time's a factor, I'll get up in the wee hours and get back to work on it. But it's it's me not working in the evening. It's taking dinner, stopping at dinner, mm-hmm. having dinner, and going to bed. Andrea, I meditate. I take walks. My husband comes and says, "Get off the computer." <laughs> <laughs> And I go to sleep early. Um, I even to li- listen to, you know, certain kinds of music to activate my theta waves. And <laughs> That's awesome. oh, maybe I need ages. to learn from you. I'm just like walking the dog. That sounds so simple. I need to no. like, you know, I need to step it up. Again. Kate, it's called like midlife. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. editing does keep you awake late at night and sometimes wakes you in the middle. In the, in the middle For, of sure. The night too. For sure. So does writing. Yeah. I don't know. Like I had a hard time last night because I was thinking of all the things I needed to add or change to a paragraph that I'm still haven't even quite finished that chapter yet. <laughs> the thing so. I go back to in the editing process with when it gets tough, because it does get tough sometimes and it feels like a battle sometimes, but I keep reminding myself that everybody on the team wants the book to be the best it can be. Yes. I just keep going back to that. Even if it feels like a battle, it's not. We're just all trying to get to the same 
goalpost. Back to your score. Yeah. <laughs> your team, teamwork. Your sports teamwork. analogy. <laughs> so what have you all been reading, cooking and loving these days? Kristen, I think you mentioned something recently. Yeah, I wanted to bring up a book called Salty. It has a number of authors. The main author is Caroline Fidanza, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Salty was a sandwich shop in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and it was just this quirky little spot run by women and they just made delicious food. I love this book because Salty closed and it reminded me of why a restaurant book can be awesome. It's preserving the food and the vibe of a beloved place. And this uh, cookbook in particular is great because the recipes are really home cook friendly. And their approach to food was this kind of cool mix of like farm to table. But then one of the chefs had gone to natural gourmet. So there was this kind of like health foodie vibe. They made their sandwiches on a really olive oily focaccia. And they use focaccia simply for space reasons because they could like store a whole bunch of it on a speed rack. The names of their dishes were often inspired by maritime type things because the whole the whole vibe was inspired by uh, Moby Dick, weirdly enough. So I don't know, it's just, <laughs> just a cool place. And very delicious food. It closed in 2017. It's from when I used to live in Brooklyn. So it's nostalgic for me. And one of the things I love to cook, there's a beef shin and farro soup. But I, I, I flip through it all the time for inspiration. So is that focaccia recipe in there? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's yeah, oh, it's so good. It's, it's pretty thick, like compared to focaccia. So it is really good for sandwiches. And then their sandwiches, they weren't exclusively plant based at all, but they often had a lot of uh, vegetable options and almost always had a pickle component. Yeah. So it's just like very dynamic tasting food. That sounds so good. God, Kristen, you made me so hungry now. And I just want to like, you know, either lick some salt or like bake that darn focaccia. Make uh, a banh mi on the focaccia. Mm. Oh, yes. Pickles yes, made me think of that. You know, a good book is is a friend in the kitchen and um, a friend for life. So I just appreciate hearing all of your thoughts about what makes a good cookbook. To hear things from the other side of the manuscript, check out my conversation with cookbook editor Jennifer Sitt. We chat about what editors expect from authors and a lot more. I thank you for all of your insights and revelations as well. This has been fun. It's a great conversation. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Everything Cookbooks. If you have questions or comments, ping us on Instagram at Everything Cookbooks or send us a message at our website, everythingcookbooks.com. Much gratitude goes out to our editor, Abby Circatella, who makes us sound extra polished like a good editor should. And if you have a second to spare, please leave us a review wherever you listen to Everything Cookbooks, which will help more people find the show. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, keep on cooking. <laughs>